As the scripture reading is somewhat long, you may remain seated while I read Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 18. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you, as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of the release is near and your eye looks grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day, today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through an ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired worker he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. The word of the Lord. Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, we again uh, seek to rest in your presence. Um, we seek to be receptive, knowing that you are a God who gives and a God who speaks a God who is gracious. And so, Father, knowing that your Spirit is here with us even now, we again ask uh, that your Spirit would uh, be present within us, helping us to hear, drawing us nearer to you, and helping me to speak in a way that is, is faithful to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to begin uh, this morning by um, speaking about a 
a problem, or I guess maybe a possible problem with the sermon that I preached last week. I, I'm going to say possible problem. You'll see that I resolve this eventually. But if you, were, uh, if you were here with us last week, you might remember that what we were looking at, not just in the Sabbath command, but then also in chapters 14 through 16, kind of an expansion of that, was, was God's instruction that was about more than just taking a day off. We were saying that these commands that God gives are meant to tell us something about ourselves, that we're not machines. We're not meant just to be productive. God didn't make us to be useful. He made us to enjoy, to enjoy His goodness, to enjoy rest. That's how we were designed. And I suggested that even though I don't believe we are called to obey the Sabbath in the way that they did in the Old Testament, that there's still wisdom and value in even maintaining rituals of rest to remind ourselves of who we are. But here's the problem that I can imagine arising. Imagine something like this happening, where after, after the sermon, someone comes up to me. Let's say she's part of this church, a single mom, um, and, and she comes up and says, hey, you know, I love this, I love the idea, I love the idea of rest, I know that's what I'm made for, but you need to understand who I am in my situation. I am right now holding down three jobs, and it's barely getting me enough to be able to pay for childcare for my kids, to get the food on the table. I'm barely keeping the lights on. So, I mean, this idea of setting boundaries of rituals of rest probably worked great for you people in Hinsdale, but you need to understand it's not a reality for me. If you were me in that situation, this hypothetical situation, what would you say? What should I say? I mean, I suppose we could try something like this. You know, I hear what you are saying, and it sounds incredibly hard. But I'm going to ask you to take a step of faith, to set aside some time to just live into that reality that you are made for rest and trust that God will provide. What do you think? Would that be, would that be a helpful response? I mean, there's definitely truth in it, right? No matter who we are, the, the, the willingness to stop working and rest demands a certain kind of faith and trust. And yet, you might remember in the book of James, there's this criticism of, of people when they see someone poor just saying, be warm, be well fed, good luck with that. It's a lot like that, right? That kind of counsel, if that's how I would respond, would be basically costing me nothing. I'm just saying, well, I hope you figure that out yourself. I, I, I would suggest that if we understand Scripture, if we understand this morning's passage, we would recognize that I would be called to a very different response, to say something like this. You know, I don't have any idea really what that's like. Your, your life sounds really hard, but here's what I do know for sure, that you are part of our family. And because you're part of our family, it is something that matters not just to you, but to all of us that you're able to experience rest. We, we can't rest rightly unless we are able to share in this rest together. And so, with your permission, I would love if maybe some of us could get together and we could think with you about how you can still have enough to pay the bills and enough to rest, because we want to make sure that can happen for you. This, I think, is actually what our passage is calling us to, because our passage is saying this very idea that I just said, that when God gave the Sabbath, and more than that, when he made us to experience rest, it was always meant to be shared together, and never that some of us rest at the expense of others. 
So the fourth commandment, which we've been kind of talking about already, it, it begins, uh, observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. That's probably the part that if we know the Ten Commandments, we think most about. But we sometimes forget that that's only the first half of the fourth commandment. It goes on, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Do you hear that emphasis? What God is saying is, as far as it is in your power, you should work to see that everyone enjoys the rest that I have made for you. If you are a parent, make sure that your kids are able to enjoy the rest. If you have people who are working for you, make sure that you're not asking them to work. If you even have cattle, don't let them work. The person who's visiting you from out of town, all of you, as far as it is in your power, you should ensure that they are able to experience rest with you. Because that's what God's intent is for us to experience His rest together and not at the expense of each other. And so our passage this morning, again, we've talked about 14 through 16 is this expansion of this Sabbath idea. Our passage focuses on that idea in particular, and it zeroes in on one of the, the main obstacles to people being able to experience rest as they were intended to, poverty. Because poverty, of course, is not just a lack of things. It is a lack of power. It is a vulnerability. Those who are poor are most easily exploited where people can force them to work and to work and to work and to work and to never rest and to become slaves. And so it is, on, it is the responsibility of those with power, those with wealth, to ensure that those with, poor are, those with poverty are able to experience God's goodness with them. That's what our chapter is about. You might have even noticed when Anne was reading, this word poor keeps coming up. So I want to focus on, in our passage, what is said about poor and what seems at first to be a kind of contradiction. So um, if you don't have your bulletins open, if you want to open it as we consider what God's instructions are about this, it starts in verse 4 where it says, But... There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance to possess. This seems to be a great solution. How do we make sure that no one is, is kept from rest through poverty? God's going to give you plenty. There's not going to be any poor. Except, verse 11, did you catch this? For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Come again? Like, how do those two... Like, it almost feels like Moses kind of forgot what he said before, but that's actually not the case. If we, if we spend some time with this, we realize that it is actually designed to fit together. Here's what I, I think is going on. God will give Israel more than enough for everyone, but he's also saying that in this land there will be occasions of difficulty. In this land, some will experience drought, or some will experience fire, some will experience sickness amongst their animals, some will be brought under duress. In this land, there will always be these opportunities for poverty, but, what he's saying, there does not need to be any poor among you. Why? Well, verse 7 provides us with the explanation. And I think verse 7, in some ways, is at the very heart of our passage. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, 
You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. This, this, is, the, this is his answer. This is the key. Open-handedness. God is saying, I will give you more than enough as a nation. You will have so much that you will be able to lend to other nations and never have to borrow from them. But there will sometimes be people who will be exposed to some degree of poverty because of the land. But here's the thing. Whenever someone has a need and needs to be loaned, keep your hand open. You who have surplus, you who have plenty, make sure you give whatever they need. And if that's what happens, there's never going to be any poor among you. That's how I've designed it. And the person with plenty might say, but wait a second, I actually would like to hold on to some of what I have here because I need to set it aside for the future. I have plans for kids and retirement. And God's like, no, you don't understand. This is not like um, optional charity. If someone is in need, it's not, a, I'll be nice, I'll lend them some. No, no, you need to understand this is a command. So verse 9, it actually says, if you keep your hand shut... If your eye looks grudgingly on your poor brother, you give him nothing, he will cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. This open-handedness is not just a way of being nice. It is a requirement for this nation to be able to all enjoy God's rest together. Those with many must keep their hands open, and God gives two reasons for this. So first, you need to understand that when someone is poor, that person is yours, so, verse 7, again, notice how it's spoken of. If among you one of your brothers should become poor. And, and your comes up again and again. In fact, it's repeated so many times in this paragraph that it's like the translations can't even keep up with it. Because when you get to the, the final verse where it says, you shall open wide your hand. Sorry, verse 11. You shall open wide your hand to your brother. It's literally to your needy and to your poor and to your land. These people are yours. They, are, they, they belong to you. They are your family. If I have an elderly parent who is needing help getting into a retirement home, is it charity if I help him? I have two sons in college. Is it charity if I'm providing for their college funds? Of course not. Their family, I have responsibility to them. And in the same way, God is saying, these are yours. They are your family. This is not some optional kindness. This is your responsibility. And secondly, God says, and you also need to understand this wealth is mine. So one thing that's repeated on a few different occasions when he talks about, like verse 7 again, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, emphasis on giving and and. And in the law of Moses, there's this kind of twofold idea that on one hand, God is generously bestowing, and yet it continues to be God's. He is, he is entrusting this land to them, but God is the one who is the giver, and he's the one who holds on to it. He reminds them again something very similar in verse 15. You shall remember, you were a slave, and God redeemed you. Remember, all of this comes from me. This is mine. And, and there is a very specific reason, God says, that some of you are blessed with extra. Verse 10, you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Do you hear that? This is why, if you're wondering why you have been, why, why there's so many crops, why your animals have had so many, you know, like the litter has grown, why? 
God has blessed you so that you now have the opportunity to be open-handed to others so that there are no poor among you. It's this principle of open-handedness is what enables everyone to experience the goodness of the Sabbath and be treated like human beings. And our passage actually gives us a couple of kind of specific examples of how that works. So the first one has to do with, with someone who's a landowner who comes into hard times. I, I don't know if you noticed this or, or, or thought it was interesting, but in verse 7, do you notice when it says, one of your brothers should become poor, it doesn't say just give him what he needs. Notice it explicitly says, you shall not harden your heart, but you shall uh, open your hands and lend him sufficient for his need. And the reason for this is because in that day, or even probably today, charity just like that would... would would create an inequity. For someone to just receive gifts would, would cause them to lose dignity and honor so that they can no longer look the other person in the eye as equals. But a loan is different. A loan preserves dignity. In, in a situation like this, what would happen is the one who has come into hard times would, would deed over a portion of his land temporarily, kind of as collateral, but also with the expectation that whatever he's able to farm from that section of the land would go towards paying off the debt. It would be something where they could work together. So that's one piece of this call to be open-handed. It's, it's be willing to loan to the person who needs it whenever they need it. But there is a second piece, and that's what we see explicitly at the beginning of our passage. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. So at the end of every seven years, if they've borrowed from you and you have some of their land, you let it all go. Whatever is remaining of the debt, you let it go. The land that has been temporarily deeded to you, you let it go. You, you open your hand and release it. Why? It's the seventh year. Why is that number significant? Because seven is the number of Sabbaths. Through your open-handedness, you are enabling someone else to experience God's goodness and savor it and be treated like a human being. You are ensuring that everyone can share in God's rest together. Second scenario comes near the end of our passage where it says in verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, uh, you might not notice this because we're so common, uh, accustomed to hearing Hebrew and thinking that just means Israelite, but it's likely that in that day, Hebrew specifically was referring to someone who belonged to a country but did not own land, which is why Abraham was spoken of as a Hebrew when he was living in a land that wasn't his own. And so that's the scenario here. You have someone who comes into hard times, but this time they don't have land to use as collateral. They don't have the ability to pay back. So what, what happens in that situation is all they have left is themselves. They, they make an agreement. If you provide me shelter, if you provide me food, I will serve you. It is what's called indentured servitude. But again, notice what we see here. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free with an open hand. 
And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally. Because here's the thing. I mean, if this person was struggling before and you just set him free after six years, he might be struggling again. So you are going to set him up to succeed. You are going to give a portion of your wealth, the flocks, the food, all of that to him so that he can go in the knowledge that he has more than enough. Why? It's the seventh year. It's the Sabbath year, you are ensuring that your neighbor, the one who has come into hard times, is able to enjoy God's goodness with you. That is the reason for your open-handedness. I mean, if you, if you step back and, and think about this, there is something um, really elegant about the way God has designed this for His people. Because in this system, Everyone is enabled to contribute. No one loses their dignity. Everyone has a job, a role to play, and yet no one is excluded from being able to experience bounty. Everyone is able to enjoy God's goodness together with hope, knowing that even if right now hard times are before them, that there is a goal, a rest that defines who they are before them. And in fact, it's, more than, it's, it's even better than if it were just each person having enough and never needing to ask for someone. Because what happens in situations like this? Those who are poor ask those who have more, and maybe a few years later, those who once had more themselves are poor, and they ask, and what you have is this constant interdependence upon, upon each other where each learn to rely on each other, and these bonds of fellowship, these bonds of dependence upon each other strengthen each other as they enjoy God's goodness as a community. It's beautiful. So what does this mean for us? Well, I would suggest that on one hand, we don't have these specific instructions. Obviously, we don't need to figure out what happens when we have an indentured servant. This is for a specific time that's not ours. And yet, God's vision that lies underneath this, His vision for not just the lucky few, but for the entire community to enjoy his goodness, that vision continues. And the expectation that those who have more than enough be open-handed also continues. Because how are we spoken of as the community? How are we described as the church? We are the body of Christ. Each of us are members of each other. We belong to each other. We're spoken of as the family of God, where we call each other brothers and sisters. We have bonds of responsibility to each other. And what's more, we are also reminded repeatedly that everything we have comes from God. He is the one who has given us everything. What do we have that is not His, we are told? In fact, we are, we are told even more than in the Old Testament. Um, in this one interesting moment where Paul is trying to remind a church that has wealth, the Corinthian church, to give from their wealth to care for a church that is poor, the Jerusalem church, he says, uh, re remember this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Just think about that verse. You've probably heard it before, but it's extraordinary. This is the ultimate act of open-handedness. Jesus, having everything, being the Son of God, opened his hand and gave it all, going to death 
so that we who are poor, we who are alienated from God, we who don't deserve anything would be made rich. We participate in the riches of Christ. And Paul is saying, if that is how our God treated you, if that is how Jesus was towards you, then you who now are rich have the opportunity to care for others in the same way. It is a call to open-handedness. In practical terms, that means that whenever there is a financial need within our congregation, it is ours. We are to care for each other in a way that preserves dignity, in a way that recognizes the complexities of situations, but it is ours. And more than that, it's not just within this congregation. When we seek to um, serve at the bridge or when we seek to participate in the ministry of living hope, that's not just us being nice. That's not just charity. That is our responsibility because the, the plenty that we have been given has been expressly given so that we can use it to care for others. And when we are able to do that, not just us, of course, we can't serve everyone, but where God has put in our place, if each of us who have been given plenty are able to do that, God uses that to provide for all. That's the vision that God has for us to fulfill. Now, I just want to pause and just, um, as we think about this and, and what it means, I can imagine another objection, one that maybe feels like a dose of realism in this idealism. And that is like, well, that is beautiful if it worked, but can it possibly work? Anyone who, is, who has studied the way that poverty works will be able to tell you that, yes, the, logically, the world has more than enough for everyone. The problem is always distribution. Yet no matter how much we talk about it, all we need to do is distribute it right. No one has solved that. No one has figured out how to do it because the human heart seems to be too much of an obstacle. There is this really interesting um, book, I think we've, uh, Nick and I have both referred to it in the past, called uh, The Shantung Compound uh, by a, a guy by the name of Langdon Gilkey. And it tells the story of, of him being in a Japanese concentration camp for a number of years during World War II, and how as, as people were experiencing in this group of about a thousand people more and more uncertainty and, and hunger, how, how revealing it was about really the human heart. And he spoke of, of one time, there's again about a thousand uh, people, but 200 of the thousand in that concentration camp were American. And the American Red Cross brought these gigantic crates with all sorts of food, and, and for people who were hungry, it was glorious, and it was like 1,400 crates. And, and the Japanese, like the people who were overseeing the concentration camp, said, we're going to make sure that we give at least one to everyone, which makes sense, except the Americans protested, because they're like, this is the American Red Cross, and we're the Americans. These are for us. We demand that we get seven, and no one else gets any of them. And Gilkey was just like, how could this be? And yet, no matter how he tried to reason with people, he, he heard all sorts of rationalizations, all sorts of morality, all sorts of legal kind of justification, but at the heart, what he saw was a heart that was intentional or just focused simply on human self-preservation. He, he, he quoted uh, one poet by saying, what keeps a man alive? He lives on others and forgets that they were supposed to be his brothers. I mean, isn't that what we often see? I mean, capitalism, some people say, is, is built on the idea that greed is what drives us. And in fact, 
if you look at what happens post-Deuteronomy in Israel, that seems to reinforce this because there is very little evidence that people ever lived out these instructions of Deuteronomy. In fact, we have evidence by the time you get to the prophets that you have some people who are just amassing more and more land and the poor are getting more and more oppressed and God is saying, I hate your Sabbaths for this reason. So does that just mean, hey, human nature is going to stand in the way of any kind of thing like this? There is one other piece of information that I think counters that pessimism about this. So there is this moment in the New Testament after Jesus has died and risen and ascended where the church is first gathered and it says the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the one who gave everything, right, is now poured upon God's people. And we have this really interesting image in Acts 3 where it says, all who believed were of one heart and one soul and no one claimed their possessions as their own, but they shared everything they had. Do you hear that? We are now being given this image of a church filled by the Spirit who are open-handed with each other. And what it goes on to say in chapter 4 of Acts is, there was no poor among them which is a direct allusion to Deuteronomy 15. There will be no poor among you. Here we see it. After all of this expectation, after all of this longing, what God kind of instills in people's hearts, we see in the time of the New Testament people being able to experience God's Sabbath goodness together. And what that, what that tells us is as hard as the human heart can be, that there is a way through Jesus to experience what God has for us. Why is it? Why is it when we think about open-handedness, and maybe even as we're trying to imagine for ourselves, just a posture of being willing to share, to loan, to give, what is it that stands in the way? Deuteronomy actually almost describes this in a really kind of bodily way. I don't know if you noticed, but it talks about a heart being hard, a hand being closed. It even in verse 9 speaks about the eye being grudging, literally bad. Uh, every part of the body, the, the eye getting resentful, you don't deserve money from me. The heart choosing not to hear the cries and, and not being softened to it, and the hand being so tight, unwilling to let go of things. Why does that happen? It's easy sometimes when we speak about the rich holding on to the rich or whatever it is that we can just talk about greed. They just want stuff. I actually don't think that's at the heart of what stands in the way of the open-handedness. I don't think it's greed. I think it's fear. I mean, just think about it even as we imagine ourselves giving of what we have to those in need. The question is, but, but how much of my savings should I dip into? Or what if I need something more in the future? Again, Gilkey, when he was trying to assess what happens, why, why would it be that people were needing or asking for so many of the crates, he, he came to an understanding, he realized when people have experienced poverty, when people have experienced hunger, in their mind it's very easy for them to imagine running out. And after one box, they realize, hey, there's going to be a time where I'm hungry again. So they need to add more. They need two boxes to make it longer. But the problem is no matter how many boxes, how many crates that you have in your mind, you can always imagine running out in the end. You never have quite enough. He, he said at one point, one seems never to be able to accumulate enough to safeguard against the future. And I think that's, that's the reason why close-handedness is so common. Because we never feel like we have enough to protect ourselves from our future. And so it feels really scary to open our hand and let others experience what we have. 
But here's why we have a way open to us that's different. Because our job is no longer to safeguard against our future. We, we have a God who has given everything, whose son became poor that we might be rich. We have a God who is open-handed, who says, everything I have is yours, who desires to pour everything out upon us. And what that means is that we don't need to protect our future. I'm not saying that there isn't wisdom in planning. I'm not saying there isn't wisdom in saving. Proverbs speaks of the value of those things. But what I am saying is it is no longer our job to make sure our future is safe. That is in God's hands. And when we recognize it and when we're able to understand my future is secure, my future is good, God has good things before me, from that posture of abundance, we have the ability to open our hands and say, come and enjoy this with me. And that is indeed what we are called to do.